Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Mario Del Pino. Mario is an incredible data team lead, also a professor at the University of Canada West, which it's hard to believe you look so young, actually. Um, Mario, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Oh, hi. Hello. Hello. I'm, I'm so happy to be here, Michelle. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. I, I wouldn't know how to how to start, but I, I always say that I'm a, when they ask me, like, what are you, right? Like, I always say that I'm a, a stubborn and unapologetic petroleum engineer. I've studied my bachelor's degree in petroleum engineering, and I did two master's degree in the subject. And I've been working in the industry since since then. I actually, the first time I visited oil and got an oil rig was in 1992 when I was one year old. So I'm, I'm, I can say that I have 30 years of experience in the oil and gas industry, even though I'm very young. <laughs> wow, how did you manage to go on a platform that young? So it wasn't a platform, it was an, uh, it was an onshore rig, right? But my father, he's a geologist. At that time, he was a, a field geologist, right? Mm. So, and, you know, in 1992 uh, in Argentina, I would guess that safety standards were not as strict as they are today, right? So my my mother, you know, she passed by, she was living nearby and they were doing some exploratory wells uh, on the south of Argentina. And yeah, you know, we passed by, we visited and we have a bunch of pictures from, from that visit. Okay, excellent. So how did you actually get started in the oil industry? Were you hooked in from then? Yeah, pretty much, right? So I, I don't I don't really remember a time where I didn't want to be, you know, a petroleum engineer or at least a, an energy professional. I went straight from from high school to study petroleum engineering, which is not a very common, you know, career to pursue in, in many cases, right? It's many people, you know, like many times you, you get out of oh, from high school I was like, okay, what, what should I study, right? And, and a lot of my, my peers, they had this very, you know, deep existential crisis because they had no idea what they wanted to do. And to me, it was, it was always very clear, right? I, I remember since I was, I don't know, five years old, 10 years old, you know, going to the office, looking at all the maps, seeing the, the incredible work that, you know, energy professionals do. And, and it just it just felt natural, you know, it, it was it, it is the place where I was meant to be. Okay, so how do you think that was it was meant you were meant to be in the oil industry? Because I grew into it, right? So, you know, I, I was always in touch with with maps, you know, with diagrams, with engineering drawings, and, and I felt it's such a an enticing industry, you know, like it's, it's so such big projects, so much impact. And seeing the the love that you know these these professionals, you know my, my father and, and his peers, the amount of love that they would show for the industry, uh, it, it it really grabbed me, right? And and you know to me, I I never really questioned it, you know. Again, when once I finished high school, it was like I need to go there, right? Like that that's my place to be. And I first it was, you know, he's, my father is like he, he he's a geologist, and I decided to kind of go to the dark side. Uh, you know, I went to engineering, so we had a bit a couple of you know fights about that. Uh, but it's it's um it's an amazing industry. It's an amazing space where you know I, a very mindful, you know, very very technically driven, energetic person can really make an impact. So it it felt like yeah, the the right place for me to be. Okay. You actually also lecture part-time as well. What yeah, made you yeah, actually that's right. do that? Sorry? What made you actually go into lecturing? So I, I always had a bit of a storytelling nature, you know. Uh, I enjoy having a captive audience. And it, I always enjoy teaching, you know, like sharing knowledge. I always, when I was at university, I would always enjoy kind of 
leading, you know, study groups, right? So, you know, I came here, maybe I can, I can tell you a bit, I don't know, maybe you want to go, we can go back and then we can get into my current positions. But basically, I came to Canada, I came to Vancouver, I've been kind of specializing myself in everything that has to do with data and digitalization, right? Mm -hmm. And this new university, you know, they're they growing very fast. Um, they are expanding the, the number of students that they have each term. I, you know, they, I just, I, I applied for the position for business analytics, right? Which, you know, very close to what a data analyst, a data scientist, you know, would feel comfortable working with. And I always had a bit of a, a business drive, right? So it, I think it was a, a very good match there. Okay. No, that sounds amazing. So do you get a lot back from lecturing? Absolutely. Yes. It's great. Like you, like in my case, so like what I try to do is because business analytics, you know, it's a very math center course, right? And in an MBA, so this is, you know, I teach at an MBA. So in an MBA, you see people that are not necessarily mathematically driven, right? So you have, you, you have your good share of, you know, accountants, a good share of engineers, but you also see psychologists, right? You see people, you know, from, from arts, right? And they don't tend to be very, you know, they, 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 most of them, they spend the, the last few years of their lives without having to worry much about the impact of math, right? And statistics. So this is a bit of a, an intro course on, you know, how you can actually use these amazing tools, these statistic tools to, to drive business decisions. I like to frame it that business analytics, it's this discipline that allows you to leverage the data that you have in any business in order to drive a more robust, fastest business uh, decision-making process, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I framed the whole course in this hypothetical uh, company called Alma Cafe. And the idea is that we, the idea is that it's this kind of boutique coffee shop, right? And, and I use that example so that, you know, they can kind of craft the idea that any business can benefit from data, right? Any business that really embraces the power and the value that data brings, you know, you can improve your processes, you can improve your decisions, you can change your business model, right? And we're seeing this in, in the energy sector, right? We're seeing that this is massive hunger for operators and for service companies to embed different data-driven technologies in order to, you know, make better decisions, faster, uh, reducing costs, increasing safety. And we, we, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of the technologies that, that are out there, right? And that we're still in this, I think we're still in this, a bit of a divergence path. So like technology tends to have this kind of divergence process and then they converge towards the business models that actually, you know, are, are proven to generate value and that the market accepts. We are beginning to, I think we're beginning to get to that convergence path. Um, so like the business models, the technologies that is actually benefiting from are the ones that are surviving this kind of their winning process. But the industry is hungry for it, right? And, and go grab any, any journal, right? Like the Journal of Petroleum Technology, you're going to find a whole bunch of different articles about, you know, how digital technology, how new technologies are helping to drive the challenges that the industry has, right? How we can kind of address them and how we can, we are trying to, to reinvent the way we operate, how do we address risk, right? And how eventually we're going to get to be an actual sustainable industry. Okay. Do you really think there will be a sustainable in industry? I So... I guess that we can get into a very complex and long discussion of what sustainable means, right? Mm -hmm. I think the best way to do that is to frame it on the energy trilemma, right? So energy needs to be affordable, it needs to be reliable, and it needs to be sustainable, right? So there is no single solution that, that matches every single one of those checks, right? Every single one of the solutions that we have, every single one of the technologies that we have, uh, is going to have a balance on that. And it's not only a technology problem, right? It's not only constrained by technology or it's not only driven by technology. It's also constrained by the resources that you have. So, for example, one of the, la the latest courses, you know, um, trainings that I did was at the Institute of Technology of Buenos Aires. And it was, the, it's called, 
management of energy transitions in plural, right? Okay. And the argument behind that is that, the, you know, there's not a single transition, right? There is a multitude of transitions where each single country needs to find its own path because it's going to depend on this, the state you are at right now and what are the resources, right, and, and, and the sources that you can actually tap into to get to that sustainable future that we're all ambitioning. In that sense, you know, sustainability and, and the transition, right, is also going to be, di be different industry-wise, right? So transitioning for the oil and gas industry is going to have a certain shape, it's going to follow a certain path. The same we're going to see for the construction industry, the same we should be seeing for the agricultural industry. So we are all, you know, struggling and, and facing this massive challenge, right? And, and I think that the oil and gas industry has first, I would say the most important thing that it has are the professionals, right? We have, you know, the great matter to actually go and face these massive challenges. We've seen massive challenges before, you know, we, we are an industry that we do not run away from challenges, right? We actually embrace them and, and we, we, we like them, right? So we, I think we're in a very good track. And, and I think that those professionals that actually recognize these challenges and the opportunities that they have are the ones that are going to be able to thrive. Okay, so what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge to get to sustainability then? The biggest challenge, I think, I think it, it wouldn't be fair to say there's a single one, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's very hard to see the, this massive, you know, huge scale of a problem and try to see it on a unidimensional, right? Like, like a unidimensional problem. I think there are many of them. Technology is one, right? And, and it's one where we tend to feel very comfortable on, right? Because we, we know how to manage technology development. In the end, you know, technology is going to follow its, its development path, its development and speed, right? We can certainly help that uh, push forward and to speed up. But there are many other factions like, like um, social response, like political response that, you know, many times we are more subject to those responses than actually able to, to influence them, right? I think that to me, you know, especially as, as a, you know, energy professional, it's, it's social response, right? And I think that all of, you know, energy professionals in the oil and gas industry, we face that challenge, you know, like, Many of us have, you know, we've, we've second thought, you know, is this the right career, right, that I should go for, right? Is there a future in this? Like, is, is, is this, you know, a good thing, you know, being supportive of the oil and gas industry is, you know, is that like morally positive? And the more time it passes, right, I'm, I'm getting more and more convinced that, you know, we, we should be proud of what we do. We, we, we should be convinced that, we are bringing a net positive to the world, right? And and I think that overall, the energy professional needs to be proud of what he and she does, right? There is a, a plot, there's a, you know, I'm an engineer, uh, I'm a nerd, so I tend to like plots, right? And there is a plot that I call the most beautiful plot in the industry that shows pretty much a straight line between energy consumption per capita versus GDP per capita. And, and it's amazing for each one, you know, for every single country. And it's amazing the the straight, the linear relationship. Well, they are log logarithmic scales, right? But still, you can see a straight line there. Uh, but it's amazing to see such a close relationship between, you know, the energy that you, you know, a country, a society needs and, you know, how much they can thrive inside that society. And the fact that our industry has been, you know, consistently over the last century providing the energy for the world to develop and to get out of poverty is something that we should recognize, right? And we should be proud of, you know, all that effort that we put in in order to get so many people out of poverty and actually get people to thrive, right? There's a lot, like, and certainly we are not done with that, right? We, we still need to, to keep pushing to you know eradicate poverty to eradicate hunger right and and we're still going to have a major role on that right so i i think that the mental blocks that many of of us you know suffer from this whole uh, energy transition dilemma right it's something that that we need to learn how to deal with 
right? We need to have more open discussions and, and we need to be more honest about many of the topics that are being discussed. But I am a very strong promoter of the idea that, you know, as an oil and gas professional, you, you should be proud of it and, and you should keep your chin high up. I agree. <laughs> to agree. So did you have any mentors during your career? Mentors said, no, not really. You know, I, I was in contact with a lot of great professionals, both, you know, leaders, uh, peers, reports. You know, I, I think that we can get inspiration from, you know, everyone who is in this industry. We are all so unique, so diverse. We all can have the capacity of bringing so much, you know, on the table. But something, you know, if, if you want me to, to bring some highlights, I would say, in, okay, so maybe maybe you know we can uh, go back and maybe I can tell you a bit of the, my 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 career track. You know, like what were the places where I I work on, and maybe I can you know pinpoint some of those operations that I found along the way. So I graduated from university in 2015, right? The eye full of promises, right? And and you know wanted to thinking that. The world's an oyster, and suddenly the oil from, went from you know two hundred dollars to nothing, right? So we had that massive price crash. Like we were talking about you know two hundred dollar oil barrel, but suddenly I remember I was in in uh, I think it was in Malaysia. I went for the, one of these congresses. I went as a student, and the oil price had just dropped. You know, so it had just plummeted, and all the projects you know froze, and and suddenly it was you know getting into the industry, you know, with this massive shock, right? And, and, and all of us who, you know, who have been on the industry for a while, we know it is like that, right? It's, it's a, it is a seasonal, you know, cyclical industry, cyclical, not, not seasonal, but the cyclical industry. And, but I got very lucky, you know, I'm very grateful that I got hired by Repsol. So Repsol, they call it the mini major, right? For example, when you read Wood Mackenzie's analysis, they refer to Repsol as a mini major because it has kind of the the attitude, you know, and and kind of you know, the the appearance or or the marketing of a major, right? They, they they are trying to fill those shoes, but it's a great company, and and they took me to Madrid. I was for a year in Spain and and Scotland, and then I came back to to Peru, and I began working on Block Fifty Seven, right? And Block Fifty Seven, it's a a block that it's in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Crazy logistics, you know, like having to fly rigs by helicopter. So pretty much, you know, dismember them, right? Fly them to the other side, 2000 tons of materials and then rig everything up like a Lego, right? So crazy operations, crazy logistics. And it, something that I always recognize is the amount of teamwork that that involved, you know, like, you know, a, a pipeline, a well, you know, a whole facility, you know, that doesn't get built by aliens from outer space, you know, that's done by, you know, by us, you know, professionals, right? A whole team, whole companies that were working together to actually, you know, pull off, you know, this rabbits out of the hat, you know, massive infrastructure in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. So, you know, getting that, that first-hand experience, you know, my first job working at such massive projects, you know, it's something that I think it was amazing. You know, I, I will always be deeply grateful, you know, for having that opportunity. So when I came back to Peru, I began working on uh, drill engineering. I was a well site drill engineer. We drill, in that time, we were drilling the Sagaris wells and we drilled one exploratory well when dry. But uh, these were wells where, you know, gas condensed wells, so very large uh, casings and tubings were maximizing the amount of, of gas that we could get, minimizing the amount of wells we had to drill. So that meant that every piece of technology that we could put into those wells, like it was going to be there, you know, very high profile wells. Um, so, you know, getting a lot of experience with, you know, state of the art technology, right? Once I finished that, you know, that was my first experience. And when I was at university as a petroleum engineer, you always kind of had this idea that, 
you either are a drilling engineer, a production engineer, or a reservoir engineer, you know, and, and we are all like, you know, like teams, you know, oh, no, I want to be a drilling engineer, I want to be a production engineer, I want to be a reservoir engineer. And, you know, I, I got to Repsol, and the first year was like, okay, you're a drilling engineer, right? Okay, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll feed those boots, right? I'll try those boots. And after a year, you're like, okay, I like these boots, you know, like I, 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 I want to develop my career in this, right? But the thing is that the project was over, we didn't have any more drilling projects, and there weren't any expatriate opportunities either. So, what you know, the option that appeared was okay, we can, you know, we need a construction supervisor for, you know, this gas compression plant. And at first, I was like, you know, I don't want, you know, construction engineer, what is that? You know, I'm supposed to be a drill engineer, you know, that's what I studied for. But a bit, you know, with a bit of a grudge, I went, okay, I'll do it, you know. And my God, you know, like the opportunity of, of being the supervisor for, you know, this multi-million dollar project, again, you know, making a massive infrastructure in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, uh, leading with logistics, you know, learning to deal with contractors, you know, I, an unbeatable experience, right? And then that was an, a year and the project ended. And then I was like, okay, I like being a construction engineer. You know, I could be this. I want to be a facilities engineer, okay? And then there was like, okay, we have no more facility projects, right? Okay, Mario, go to be production. Do some production, right? I was like, damn, again, you know? But by that time, I was like, okay, I'm going to embrace change, you know? I, I, by that time, I realized, you know, this is, this is an opportunity. And I was lucky because, you know, this being a very recent development, Repsol had put, you know, the, this, a state-of-the-art SCADA system, right? So we had sensors everywhere. I, I would always joke and say that the only place that we were missing sensors were the bathrooms, right? Because we could see everything. We could see pressure, temperature, flow rate, everything. We, we knew what was happening on that field at every single second. And at that time, that should have been 2018 maybe, Okay, so my first response was, okay, I'm going to I sit down, I look at the screens, you know, and I see all this data that was showing me flow rate and pressure. And, you know, petroleum engineers, we know that if you have a well and you have flow rate and you have pressure, you can build an IPR curve, right? An inflow performance relation or, you know, a productivity uh, function. So I say, okay, I'm going to do that, right? So I download the data and, send, you know, I, and we had a very terrible plugin to do that. And I realized that it's like 300,000 data points, right? And, and like, there's no way you can build, you know, a, a simple model with that on Excel. Like Excel couldn't handle that amount of information. And, and that was how I got into data. When a friend of mine, he's a physicist, he told me, you know, like, okay, you have that amount of data, you should really learn data science. It was like, data science, what is that? And I, I, I got, I taught myself that, right? I, I took a couple of online courses, but you know, I'm, I'm, I hate kind of guided learning. I was like, okay, give me the basics, and I'll just read as many books as I, as I can. And we, uh, so I began to, to actually implement all of these data science techniques on my day-to-day -day work, right? And it was eye-opening. It was like seeing light, you know, like you have all this data. Like I was sitting next to these servers with, you know, terras of data that no one was using, right? So I, I was a kid in a candy store in that sense. Then, you know, uh, I did kind of a year there in, in production and then I moved to be a, a project engineer. And eventually I was assigned to be kind of the digitalization lead, digitalization focal point for the local asset. So I begin to see how, how do we implement new technologies, right? So that we can improve our processes, right? So for example, we're bringing these new business intelligence systems with which we could monitor logistics and you know every single work order that we had we began to implement digital twins more focused on how do we track the performance of each one of our wells and how can we you know automate the whole kind of modeling process right analytics process we tested drones how can we map out the surface of our facilities right so that we can catch earth movements much earlier with with lidar technology smart helmets, like whatever kind of sci-fi, you know, techie technology that the company was bringing, I was in charge of making sure that that technology would actually generate value to the asset, right? So that's how, I, you know, I, I got into data and digitalization and all this nerdy stuff. And then in 2022, I, I decided I needed need a change. 
So I, so with my wife, we we're planning to 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 go to Canada. So I, um, you know, we moved. I I left everything behind, and I said, you know, I'll go to this city that is the the most anti-hydrocarbon city in probably you know in the West Coast. I'll give it a shot, right? Because um, Vancouver is kind of the Silicon Valley of Canada, right? Like the the tech movement here is massive. So I said, you know. To hell with it, I'm gonna try it here. You know, my idea was to get full heads on on, you know, with AI and digitalization and all of that. And you know, destiny has everything planned out. And I I, I get here, I get a place, you know, we, we rent a house, and I find this company that is called Dark Vision. Beautiful name. And it turns out that they do ultrasonic inspection on oil and gas wells, okay. And the differentiator is that they have, I, I joke I joke about this, but I say that we have alien technology, like our ultrasound tool, like the hardware, it's designed by, by crazy people, right? Uh, our, our engineering and manufacturing teams, they're, they're amazing. Like right? the, the piece of technology that they were able to put together is crazy. But not only that, but it's also leveraged by cloud computing and AI. So, the the speed at which the amount of data that we can get from each well it's around 50 gigas let's say on average right so we run a scan on each well we get 50 gigas of data and then we need to analyze these massive data sets right so we use a lot of machine learning algorithms to actually help us on that so we we speed out we speed up the the processing time you know orders of magnitude and and our turnaround times are, are quite fast and the amount of detail that you can see it's it's incredible you know being it's the first time i ever saw you know a, a breached casing for example and actually being able to see to render it to visualize it right and and to actually you know make decisions about that it was crazy it was amazing so that's kind of that's kind of my journey right now okay so it's an amazing journey actually so out of your whole career, what has been your most challenging aspect? I would say, I would say, changing that role from you know an analyst, an engineer, you know, driven by numbers and equations, right, and processes, to a to a leader, right, to a manager. So you know, for us, you know, as an engineer, one plus one is equal to, right. And, and, you know, there's always a final answer, a right answer, right? Or a best estimate. But, you know, the skill set for actually driving, you know, a, a, an effective team is completely different, right? One, you know, a skill set that, you know, hardly any engineering program, you know, provides. But, you know, it's a challenge and it's part, you know, of the, of the, of the growing path, right, that, that I chose. And right now, I'm, I'm very grateful for you know the, the trust that, that Dark Vision has has bestowed upon me, you know, leading this new team of data analysts to, to on the casing integrity side. To me, it's, it's very rewarding, right? But but having to change that you know mental chip of going from you know I have the right answer to say you know there is no right answer, you know, there's I, I see more of a of a process driven role where you know okay what processes do i need to put in place and what mechanisms and resources can i provide you know i can equip my team with so that they can perform right they can get the job done and and i'm a leader at their service right i'm at the service of my team and, and not the other way around okay so i was just wondering you were saying that you had so many roles when you were newly graduate, uh, newly mm -hmm. graduated from the university. Do you think that that's helped you in your career? Do you think it's given Absolutely. you general, uh, really good knowledge of all aspects of the energy sector? Absolutely. Absolutely. First, it, it makes you very appreciative the, you know, of, of the complexities, right. And, and, and the sheer, you know, length of our industry, right? When you grab, you know, the whole value chain, there are so many components, right? So many steps in the way, you know, being lucky enough to 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 have stopped in, in many of those steps, not all, of course, you know, because, you know, from, from the well to the pump, 
you know, it's an innumerable amount of, of steps that would be very hard to, to cover them in one person's lifetime, right? But for sure, you know, being able to 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 have that that point of contact with different specialties and, and you know, at least understand how the industry thinks, right? And and makes decision on a broader scope for sure has helped me to better understand, you know, what are the drivers, right? Because when you're, you know, in in I don't know, in production, for example, okay, you're 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 thinking in terms of volume, right? You want to make sure that, you know, the, the barrels are going out, that the cubic feet are, you know, are 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 flowing, right? You're thinking in terms of, of safety, right? Uh, but for example, you're not thinking in, in terms of, not necessarily in terms of, I don't know, you know, risk management, like, you know, uh, an exploration team does, right? So we, each one of us, you know, each one of those specialties kind of develops, you know, uh, its, its own mental frameworks, right? Their own, you know, way of working, their own way of operating. So yeah, you know, it, 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 I appreciate the fact that it took me out of my comfort zone, right? I think my comfort zone has stretched quite a bit, you know, because every year I would be assigned a new role, have to learn, you know, a new, completely new area, right? Completely new procedures, having to deal with completely new people, right? So, you know, his, that has kept me on, on my food, you know, every single day of, on my journey. And I still don't see, you know, any, anytime soon I will be settling down on, on a specific role. Okay, so what advice would you give to to new graduates who find themselves in that type of position? Because when you are graduating, you're all excited and wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and raring to and raring to go, and your preference would be to have a job and what you've studied. But because you've had quite a lot of different areas of engineering do you think that that's hindered you i'm gonna say you know i don't want to be prescriptive in the sense that you know this is what you should do i think each one of us has a, a unique career path what i can recommend is embrace yours right and own yours so there is so much learning that we can do on every single role that we take right so make sure that you know you're you're following that road, you know, the, whatever role you were giving, you know, that, that fate decided to put in front of you, make the best out of it. And, and, you know, just trust that on the other side, you know, even though you might feel you're not comfortable, right, you're going to be, you're going to appreciate it eventually. So we can learn from every experience, we can learn from every role. And, and, you know, if you feel that, you know, your your career path is to, you know, be a resident engineer with 30 years of experience in that specific role, you know, and be the leading expert in, you know, so on and so forth, this specific basing, sure, you know, like, that's great, you know, go for it, right? I know people like that. I, I, I have a, a very close of friend of mine. He graduated and, you know, the most stubborn person I've ever met. Even though I'm, I'm, you know, arguably more than I, I think. Uh, but you know, he he got out of university and he rejected quite a few offers because they were not resident engineering offers. So you know, absolutely stubborn. And you know, he he went for it. He embraced it. He owned, you know, that that path that he decided to take. And you know, from from our generation, he's the youngest consultant that I know. Right. So you know. I think embracing, you know, that path that you've been given or that you've selected, it's, it's important, right? And if you have to face change, embrace that, right? Because stretching yourself and, and you know, thinking outside the box and, and staying, you know, on, on that kind of continuous learning and improvement mentality, um, that, that's, that's valuable, right? So that's fine. Okay, so have you ever encountered any career disasters then? Career disasters? I wouldn't think so. Challenges for sure, right? Like our careers are challenges. Our industry is a whole challenge, right? Like we, it's not easy to, to find oil. My God, you know, three kilometers, five kilometers under earth, having to drill, hopefully find something and then hopefully make it economically, you know, 
putting the money first and then hopefully see some fluid flowing five years into the future. My God, like, you know, that's a massive undertaking. That's a challenge. Challenge we can manage. Disasters are not acceptable, I think. We've seen challenges in the industry. We, we, we've seen Piper Alpha. We've seen Macondo, right? Those are unacceptable. We should not accept, you know, disasters. And we need to do everything that we can in order that to, to uphold our industry to standards beyond any other industry, right? I, I, you know, why? Because, my God, like we're working with flammable, you know, oil and gas, you know, it's not, you know, it's not an easy fluid to work with. So we need to hold ourselves to, you know, the highest standards that we can, ourselves, our peers, our companies, and we just pick up, right? And I think that the industry is, has done a very good job in kind of adopting that philosophy of, you know, safety is first, right? Of, you know, if you see a hazard, right? If you see a hazardous situation or, or a hazardous act, okay, you need, you know, you have the authority and you have the duty to raise that up, right? So I think as, as, as an industry, we need to keep that in mind, you know, disasters are not acceptable and, and we need to, to hold ourselves accountable to, to that standard. Okay, I agree, actually. I do really agree. What, in your opinion, would make an outstanding hire? What would you look for? It really depends on, on the position. But for example, right now, we, we are in this, um, we're hiring a lot of people right now. Uh, we are in this massive expansion process. And, and my, my approach right now at hiring is, like, I, I don't really care that much about titles. You know, like, do you have this certificate? Are you, you know, this specific, you know, specialty, this career? I think we all have the capacity for, for learning, you know. What I look is, is for, for attitude, right? Like, do you have the right mindset? Our industry is not an easy industry to, to work in. You know, it's, there's a lot of sacrifice, you know, working in it. You know, um, I missed the birth of my first, you know, of, of my first son. You know, I was, I was offshore and, you know, duty call, right? And, and the moment my wife, you know, can labor, yeah, I took the first flight to get there. But, and it's funny because the thing happened, the, first, the same thing happened to my father, right? So stories repeat themselves. But I think it's important to know that, you know, to, to, to find people that are appreciative of, you know, the challenges, the sacrifices that working industry, you know, entails you know, the, the benefits, right. And, and the payback eventually is going to come. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that, but, you know, coming to the industry with the right mindset of, you know, of, okay, you know, it, it's, it's a grind, you know, it's not easy. It's a challenge. We are facing with very complex, very difficult, very technical stuff. So, you know, you, you, you gotta have a bit of, I, I don't want to say cold, cold mind because, you know, I, I feel like, in diversity of, of personalities, there's a lot to learn from each other. But having you know the right attitude to want to face challenges, to want to embrace challenges, to want to to embrace change, and to take ownership of, of the challenges that we are given, I think that's that's key to me. Okay, no, I agree. I totally agree. So, what is your zone of genius? My what? Your zone of genius. What are you most good at? most good at that's a tough one i think i'm a, a very far, fast learner right give me whatever topic you want and you know I, i'll just you know I, i'll gobble whatever you know information there is out there like i i i i, I don't mind challenges that challenge my you know my my mental capacity let's say right so i think that brain-driven challenges, you know, I, I, I thrive on them, right? I, I enjoy them to an extent that, you know, it's, it's hard for me to explain. I would say that, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to think myself of, you know, having any type of genius uh, properties, you know? Uh, I think that that would be too self-serving maybe. <laughs> but, but I do think that, you know, among my strengths, uh, that's probably one of the easiest one to to mention. Okay, so what keeps you motivated when times get tough? When time gets tough, I would think it is 
and knowing that that this is a a worthy endeavor you know again you know the the fact of being proud of what we do it, it took me a lot of you know self-reflection you know thinking what is it that we do you know the type of industry we work in but again you know the days passes and i'm i'm ever more convinced that the the, the work that we do the sacrifices that we make uh, have an, a, a net positive impact on the world and, and the people around us. And, you know, in those hard times, uh, family always prevails in some sense, you know, so always keep in mind that the struggles that we go through, you know, in the end, it's, it's for the benefit of, of those around us. Okay. What is the hardest engineering problem that you've had to, had to solve then? The hardest one? Yeah. Or the most challenging one, or the hardest one. I wouldn't. The, okay, engineering challenges. I think like because you know we I come from this you know engineering very mathematically driven mindset. Like they they all have solutions, right? Like you always can find you know a, a compromise, a middle ground, a way to optimize. I don't see those as as particularly hard challenges. However, for example, I see a, a larger challenge when we need to breach engineering and design and technology with people, right? So when I was, uh, uh, you know, the, the digital focal point for Repsol it was like, yeah, we have this amazing, you know, technology that is supposed to help us improve and optimize our workflows, right? It's supposed to help us operate better, work better. And, you know, the technology can be supreme, but if the onboarding and, and you know, the training and, you know, the, the, the management of change process to make sure that people buy into your solution and buy into, you know, these new changes that you're going to put in place, if you do not manage people accordingly, you know, effectively, you will fail, right? So mm -hmm. I would say that learning that was probably the largest challenge, you know? It can be obvious for you, right? It can be obvious in numbers. It can be obvious in, in an engineering drawing, but it's not necessarily obvious for, you know, when, when you take it to the, the social, you know, soft skills level, right? A dimension. So, you know, making the change of saying, you know, not everything is numbers, you know, not everything is dollars, not everything is it's, it's volume of, you know, production. Uh, you always need to keep in mind, okay, how do we drive change, you know, through the buying of the stakeholders? That was, to me, a massive paradigm shift. Okay, so how do you get someone to buy into your ideas then? So the, the approach that I took, the approach that I liked the most is involving people in process, right? So no one likes, you know, being told that the way you're doing things is wrong, right? No one likes hearing that, you know, the tool that you're using, you know, is, is, is not the right one, right? You, because you, you feel stupid, right? Like, who are you? And the other thing is like, who are you to know, like, what do I need? You know, I, I'm, if you came here and you tell me that I should be using this software to, you know, plan my logistics, for example, what do you know about my logistics? What do you, do you know about the nature of my operation, right? So that kind of the not build here uh, syndrome, right? It is probably the, the, the biggest roadblock, right? If not addressed properly. So what I would do is I would onboard, you know, key stakeholders in the team to actually feel, you know, to actually contribute and improve the product, right? Not just as a, as a, you know, signal th signaling thing, but you know, as a matter of saying, you know, who better to tell you how this should be developed and implemented than the person that is actually going to be using this, right? So, you know, bringing people over, right, and being very transparent about the process and what are what is the objective, like what what is what what is the reason behind this massive change that we want to do, uh, and how is this going to benefit all of us, right? I think it's it's a mess. Like think of the last time that you know your your Windows operating system changed and how much you hated that, right? We, we all we all had that experience, right? So we need to be very mindful of you know 
how people react with new technologies, with new tools that you bring over. And, you know, always listen to the end user in the end, right? Because you can have the best technology in the world, but if you're using, user is not really using it, you know, it's pretty much worthless, right? So I would say that. I think that's, you know, as a, an early tip on, on how to improve those processes is, you know, bring over your people, you know, bring over your user, talk to him, you know, make sure that, that they feel involved in the project of implementing this technology, right? That, that, that they can own it. It's not like you are the person in charge of implementing this technology and, you know, you take the, all the credit. No, you know, it's them, you know, kudos to them for, for being able to implement and to adopt this, you know, new technology that is putting them ahead of, you know, the competition and their peers. Okay. So do you have any advice for anybody going to be starting out in, in the engineering industry? Be curious, like never, never stop learning. You know, there is, you have no idea how much you don't know. Right. And, and I think you, you need to keep that mindset, you know, a very open mindset throughout your career, because, you know, yeah, when you first get out, you know, it's pretty clear that you know, Jack, right? Like it's, it's, it's obvious, right? And, and that's why you're a trainee, right? But it's harder to keep that mentality, you know, three, five, 10 years into the job, you know, and, and at the speed that things are changing, you know, there are a lot of things that people don't know today that are going to have major, massive impacts in the way we operate and the way we work, right? Uh, take ChatGPT, for example, right? We, we've heard about it, like we, I'm pretty sure most of your listeners have, have played with it, right? But, you know, many engineers are not using it, right? So we have these tools that are suddenly popping up, you know, and, and you have no idea when, you know, when is the next time a new piece of technology is just going to revolutionize, you know, the tool that you're using, right? So, yeah, always keep a, a mentality of, you know, I don't know what I don't know, so I better keep learning things. That's really good advice, actually. I really like that. So do you think when you left university, and you start your first job, do you think that what you learned in your degree or master's or whatever you're doing, do you think it helped you or do you think it's a lot different? It certainly helps, right? Like at the very least, it gives you the, the framework to, to actually go and, and solve problems, right? Um, your yes, you know, like I'm not gonna say it, it doesn't work, like it's, it's not useful but it's less useful than you think probably, right? You're gonna learn most of, you know, what makes you a professional engineer on the job that at university. And, you know, and, you know, I, I've, I, I've seen analysts that, you know, they don't need to have a degree in engineering to be great analysts, right? So, you know, yes, getting a, a degree, you know, it's a good step, like, okay, you've shown that you can get the work done, right? You've shown that you can face challenges. You've shown that, that you know, you, you, can, you can accomplish goals. That's great, okay? Next step, you know, you need to keep doing that for, you know, for the rest of all your life, hopefully, right? But yeah, you know, bring, bring with you that hunger for learning, that hunger for challenges, right? Not so much the the actual knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's uh, excellent advice, actually. So I'm going to finish with one final question. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? No, no, I would study petrol engineering again. No, it, like the trip so far has been so great. I'm so grateful for the opportunities that I've had. Um, so amazed with what I've seen that I, I wouldn't change a thing. I don't think so. You know, I think that we are made by, you know, the choices and, and the paths that, that, you know, we stride. I wouldn't be me if, if I wouldn't have made those decisions, right? So I, I don't want to get into, you know, convoluted, you know, back to the future dilemmas. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I would probably make the same decisions then. So you'd still study petroleum engineering then? Yeah. So maybe a better question is like, 
if I had to choose a career today, right, I would still like, I think today is probably the best time to study petroleum engineering because the amount of how hard it is to actually get experienced professionals in oil and gas, it's crazy. We are struggling a lot to find, you know, good professionals because like since 2015, registrations to petroleum engineering plummeted worldwide, right? South America, maybe not so much, but in, in North America, we're seeing it right now. So, you know, we are pretty much in, in a, you know, tug of war for talent, right? So people are not studying, right? There's still going to be a need for, for petroleum engineers. And, you know, we petroleum engineers, we are the owners of the subsurface. So you want to talk about carbon capture and storage, you want to talk about geothermal, we are the ones that know how to you know, map reservoirs. We are the, the ones who know how to drill a well, you know, to get there. We are the ones that know how to produce fluids from that or inject fluids into it. Uh, we are the ones who know how to deal with uncertainty and, and with risk management. So, you know, subsurface, you know, it's like that. So, you know, we are the kings of the subsurface. So, you know, geologists and mine engineers, they get to a couple of, you know, few, few hundred, maybe, I don't know if can, they can get to, to a kilometer deep. But, you know, all oil and gas professionals, engineers and geologists and geoscientists, you know, we go deep, we go deeper. So I think it's a great career to study. And, and I would deeply and strongly encourage any, any young technical minded people to, to pursue petroleum engineering. Great career, great opportunities, great future. Excellent. I think there's a. I actually think there's a, a shortage of engineers all over. I think actually. Well, that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Mario for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.